Okay, you're welcome to a new podcast series from Arts and Humanities and Social Science faculty at Queen's University, Belfast, examining the debate around constitutional futures. I'm Professor Colin Harvey from the School of Law at Queen's, and I'll be hosting the discussion today. The focus of this episode is on the economic implications of the conversation about the present and the future. I'm really delighted to be joined by Dr. Esmond Burney, a leading contributor to economic reflections on Northern Ireland. Dr. Burney is a senior economist in the Department of Accountancy, Finance and Economics at Ulster University. Prior to that, he was chief economist for PwC in Northern Ireland and Scotland. Before that, he was a special advisor to the Northern Ireland Executive Employment and Learning Minister. Dr. Burney has also served as an MLA here. He has published widely and his advice and views are regular, regularly sought. You're very, very welcome uh, to uh, the podcast, Dr. Burney. Thank you for contributing. I'm going to start with a fairly general question about the current state of the debate. Really interested to know your thoughts about what is the current state of the economic debate for or against constitutional change? Uh, wherever you stand on the constitutional question, is the economic debate specifically in a good place from your perspective, Esmond? Well, thanks, Colin. I think the first thing I would say is, particularly with the last five, six, seven years or so, there's been a, a growing tendency, uh, an increasing number of commentators have been trying to use economic-based arguments uh, as opposed to constitutional arguments, human rights arguments, uh, cultural arguments, whatever, but specifically economics to argue for change, and particularly in terms of in favour of movement towards a so-called United Ireland. Now, I think possibly there are uh, four main explanations for why we, we have this trend. Uh, one is there may be something of an accumulation or a bandwagon effect. So once a couple of commentators start it, then, then it's, uh, it's snowballed. But I think secondly, uh, there is something very cyclical about this. In other words, we've seen it before. And what I would say in general terms is uh, it makes sense when the southern economy, the Republic of Ireland economy is doing reasonably well, these sorts of arguments come to the fore, uh, whether they're made by people here in Northern Ireland or indeed by people in Dublin or indeed elsewhere in the world. A third explanation for this, this, this trend towards using um, economic-based arguments in favour of, of unity is of course uh, impact or some impact or link to uh, Brexit uh, since 2016. However, um, I would say I think the relationship is is in reality um, quite complex. Uh, I'll make two points here. First of all, I don't think the long run economic cost of Brexit is going to be as harmful as some projected, particularly uh, there were projections back in 2016 uh, talking about a 10% uh, reduction in the size of the Northern Ireland economy after 10 years or 15 years compared to where it would have been. Uh, I think a second qualification is um, looking at the history of, of politics in, in, in Northern Ireland. Um, there's nothing inevitable about a connection between Irish nationalism and indeed Irish republicanism and supporting ever closer European um, un Union or, or, or European federalism. And in fact, until I think as recently as the early 1990s, um, the position of Sinn Féin was very much anti the European Union. So uh, they've they, they moved 180 degrees there. And then fourthly and lastly, in terms of explaining what's going on, um, there, there's been very strong reliance placed or seem to have been placed on opinion poll evidence which seems to be showing or some say shows um, a, an, an increasing support amongst the Northern public and potential voters for unity. But um, 
the the opinion polls are 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 present a range of findings and uh, that those which are based on the traditional um, face-to-face or indeed uh, telephone-based um, do seem to be giving a much lower support for unity relative to the status quo as compared to there is one particular online polling company producing uh, results which uh, seem to be pointing towards a much more close um, um, polling position. So that's how I would characterise descriptively um, the, the, the current position. And Esma, one of the aspects of the debate that, that you've also highlighted there is comparisons, north-south comparisons. I suppose a question I would have is, do we have sufficient reliable data now? Is it possible to make from your perspective, you know, useful comparisons, north-south, in the present moment? And if not, what more do you think we might need to know to make those sorts of comparisons? That's a hard one to answer because I think uh, there there is enough data and enough uh, reasonable data out there to, to have a meaningful debate. However, uh, the data does often need to be used with caution, with care. And one notable uh, example of this, and we, we may come back to it later, is I, I think in no meaningful sense should we think that the Southern Irish economy grew at somewhere between 25 and 30 percent, as the official GDP figures suggested for the year 2015 and the Southern Irish Central Statistics Office uh, and other commentators in the Irish Republic and elsewhere recognise that. So there, there are some peculiarities about the data, uh, some sort of traps that people can, can fall into if, if the, 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 they're not aware of, of, of the underlying nature of the data. In terms of what we need to know more about, and I suppose academics typically always will say, uh, particularly researchers in the social and economic area, we need more data, but we do. Um, the underlying competitive performance of the two economies, North and South, um, trade data, again, we may refer to that uh, again later. And I think we need to know much more about the outputs and indeed the effectiveness of the two sets of educational and healthcare systems, both here in North Ireland and indeed. What's your own view, Esmond, around the question of economic performance of both jurisdictions on the island in terms of how they're performing at the moment? And, and why do you think that is? You'll know, for example, that uh, there's been recent discussion around the performance of the Republic of Ireland. Uh, people suggested that the island might be better off in different ways. What's your own thoughts on that? Well, I think put it into, I'll put it into context by saying, first off, um, like many other economists, though not all, but probably like most economists, I favour free trade. And I think that trade and economic relationships between countries uh, can be to mutual benefit. In other words, we live in a win-win world. So I, I'm not somebody who thinks um, if I favour North Ireland remaining within the United Kingdom that I have to do down the economic performance of the Republic of Ireland because if the Republic becomes richer in the long run, that contributes to us becoming richer and vice versa. Another thing I'd say by way of context is this is a classic example of the glass is half full and half empty. Yes, there are many uh, world-class businesses in, in both Irish economies and indeed uh, many uh, world-beating entrepreneurs and managers, but a, a central economic problem we have, and it exists uh, obviously here in Northern Ireland, but certainly also the Republic of Ireland, is what statisticians would call the long tail of underperformance. In other words, firms that are below average and indeed a very similar sort of pattern exists in other sections of society in terms of how schools perform, how policymakers perform and indeed um, uh, the civil servants who, who support the policymakers. Now, in terms of the North Island economy, over the last 100 years, it is glass half full, half empty. 
North Atlantic economy has roughly kept pace with the UK average in terms of growth of the economy, growth of living standards. That's good news, but the less good news is that uh, uh, we, we have made little progress over the 100 years since the state came into being in terms of narrowing uh, the gap that exists between GDP or output per person and indeed the productivity of the economy. Now, if you look at the southern economy, the Republic of Ireland economy, over the last 30 years, on average, things look, look good in terms of economic growth, although obviously there have been uh, some major recessions, notably the banking crisis, and indeed in terms of growth of jobs. But I think it's very important, especially in terms of what we're talking about here, to not forget that in the period after independence uh, started in 1921, probably all the way through to 1970 and possibly as late as 1990. So somewhere between the first 50 and 70 years of independence in Ireland, it can, I think, be argued uh, that living standards were lower than they would have been if independence had not occurred. In other words, if the Republic of Ireland had in fact stayed within the UK. And it's not for nothing that one of the leading economic historians of Ireland, uh, Professor Cormac O'Grada, entitles one of his books about Irish economic history, The Rocky Road, because it was a very rocky road, at least until recently. And I think there are still some issues and uh, there, there are really, I think, two big questions about um, the Southern Irish economy and then by implication, to what extent could the Southern Irish economy, as it were, feasibly absorb and link up in terms of a new constitutional status, unity, uh, Irish unity with Northern Ireland. The two questions are, Yes, you do have a very high-performing multinational or international business firm sector in computer, software, uh, pharmaceuticals and certain food-related uh, and drink-related products. But how well is that integrated into the rest of the economy? And then the second question is, I think, one that's going to grow in importance and hence um, reduces the ability of the Southern Irish economy to envisage uh, this sort of major constitutional change that some are talking about. And this is the whole issue of the, the corporation tax, the low tax, corporate tax uh, strategy. How sustainable is that in the future, given the way that uh, the international politics of business taxation is, is tilting. So the uh, very low rates of tax in the, the Republic of Ireland are being opposed by much of the rest of the European Union, particularly France and Germany. Uh, President Biden has very strong views, as we know, about establishing minimum rates of taxation, which will be paid particularly by American companies, regardless of whether they're in America or in other parts of the world. So that's an important context. Now, this debate then often comes down to reduce to the level of saying, well, you know, how are living standards comparing at the moment in the two economies? There's been a lot of literature on, on this, particularly in the last two years. So uh, professors Adele Bergen and Seamus McGuinness in Dublin, um, Graham, Dr. Graham Godgen in England, formerly uh, at Ulster University, and uh, earlier this year, the former um, chair of the Central Bank of Ireland, uh, Professor Paddy Honahan, have all written about this. And I think the safest conclusion is to say at the moment, the level of living standards on average for people in North Island and the Republic of Ireland are broadly similar. Uh, North Island may still have a small couple of percentage point uh, advantage. Now, there, and we're back to this earlier point uh, called about data. Uh, there, there are at least two reasons why these comparisons are, are, are not straightforward. And I think particularly of looking at the level of private consumption by households added to which the level of government spending on education and health. And as I say, I think the data indicates to me 
and to other commentators that North and the Republic are broadly similar. Uh, two areas of uncertainty are, you know, how do you compare prices across the two jurisdictions? And I think especially if you look at Dublin and property prices in Dublin, there's a strong grounds for arguing that North Island may have a very significant price advantage that would boost living standards for many people in North Island compared to uh, their counterparts in the public. But then there's also this question about quality of public services. And uh, I know an argument is often made, uh, especially by commentators based in the Republic, that in some sense the schooling system in the Republic of Ireland outperforms its Northern Ireland counterpart, or indeed similarly the healthcare system. But uh, this is a complex area and not all of the statistics do in fact indicate that the southern educational system outperforms the northern system. There's some data points in the opposite direction. And with respect to healthcare, yes, I would concede that there is some data, e.g. OECD data, suggests that levels of spending on healthcare in the Republic now exceed not just Northern Ireland, but the UK average per person. But uh, then you've also got to look at quality-based issues and the percentage of people in the Irish Republic who have free at the point of care access to hospitals, doctors, etc. Uh, in the Republic is, is obviously much lower uh, than Northern Ireland with its NHS-based system. Th thank you very much, Esmond. I just want to move on now to thinking about a topic that that tends to dominate much of the discussion, but has been looked at in, in a lot more detail in recent years, and that's the question of subvention. And I just wonder what your own thoughts were around the role and extent of the subvention to Northern Ireland and its potential impact on this discussion and debate, because there are some quite strikingly divergent views on its role, nature and impact. Yes, uh, that, that's right. So the first thing, very obvious point, but important one I'd make is the subvention, as it's sometimes called, or indeed the fiscal transfer or the fiscal deficit. And just by way of definition, that's the difference between uh, total public spending relating to North Island and the total level of tax revenue raised here. So if we were an independent country, uh, either public spending in North Island would have to come down because our tax revenues are relatively low, or we'd have to borrow and we'd have to borrow on a massive and probably unsustainable scale. So it exists, it's, it's, it's big. Now, I, I accept that you can't go simply from the, the figure for this adventure, the most recent figure to, for 2019 to uh, 2020 financial year is 10.3 billion. You can't go from that and say, well, that is the uh, cost that the Irish Republic would incur in tax and spending terms if it were attempting to absorb North Ireland. But it is, I think, indicative that there would be a, a requirement ultimately on taxpayers in the Republic of Ireland to, to either see their own level of public expenditure reduced or uh, to pay higher taxes or to foot the burden of future higher borrowing. Uh, to to pay uh, something of that order. Now, commentators who favour um, unity and have tried to base that on an economic argument have, I think sometimes, especially in recent years, made some quite bold assumptions that elements of the so-called subvention could be written off, that they wouldn't apply after constitutional change. Um, so there are two notable areas have been highlighted. It's been suggested that as part of the process of change, the UK government, the London government, would write off the uh, proportion or obligation that Northern Ireland has to proportion of UK public debt. Now, this could happen. It, it's ultimately uh, a question of what would happen in the negotiations. And of course, we've seen the Brexit negotiations and how fluid they were. And to some extent, there's still a fluidity and uh, dynamic in the relationship between the UK and uh, its, its former partners within the EU. And all of that was about finance. 
and how much money the UK would pay and continue to pay to the European Union. Now, it's been said, well, in the 1920s, when uh, independent Ireland, Irish Free State, came into existence, it's what would have been its obligation for a proportion of UK public debt was written off. That is true, but you do need to look at the particular circumstances. It happened after the 1925 Boundary Commission report. And I think a reasonable interpretation, which a number of historians and others have taken of events, is that it, it was a quid pro quo. Uh, it was a payoff. In other words, um, the newly established um, independent uh, Dublin government uh, with some reluctance, I suppose, accepted um, the Boundary Commission and the continued existence of, of, of Northern Ireland uh, substantially within the six counties as laid out back in the 1921 partition. But in return, um, they, they avoided making interest payments on, on the UK national debt. Now, there's no guarantee that circumstances would play through in the same way at any point in future decades um, regarding um, Irish unity. And it, it's similarly been argued by um, some commentators that the London government would um, accept a continuing obligation to pay um, pensions, um, the, the obligations that are built up for people who, who you know, who'd been working and living in North Ireland when it was still part of the UK. Well, of course, a UK government could decide to be generous and do that. But I, I think it's sort of perhaps straining credibility that on both fronts, the debt front and the pension front, and the annual payments involved are considerable in terms of the debt payment is over 1 billion and the pension payment per annum around about three or more billion, that it would simply write off both of those. And some commentators have even argued additionally, the UK government, perhaps in terms of some tapering off, phased off system, would continue for a number of years to pay for some of the capital or infrastructure budget of North Ireland. Well, I think that is really piling on the strain and credibility that on all those fronts, Fiscal generosity would be shown by UK government, which after all would be, you know, dispensing with part of, of, of the national, as it would see it, the national territory. So the, this invention is there, it's considerable. It, it doesn't necessarily translate in simple terms directly into what would be, as it were, the cash bill inverted commas for unity, particularly in terms of uh, the Southern Irish electorate and base of taxpayers, but it is indicative of a considerable challenge to them. Th thank you, Esmond. You mentioned there in the discussion uh, the B word Brexit, and I just wondered what your thoughts are on the impact of Brexit, particularly around the protocol. I know you've recently shared your thoughts on the economic impact of the protocol in Northern Ireland. I just wondered if you could say a, a bit more about that and its impact on this wider debate as well. Yeah, well, in terms of the protocol, in, in a way, the way to think about this is if Northern Ireland businesses suddenly faced a big increase, let's say, in the cost of energy being brought into Northern Ireland, oil, gas, whatever, or indeed other products, food products being brought into Northern Ireland, that it would impact on business profits, it would impact on consumers, there might be an impact on the choice facing consumers. And in a sense, the protocol um, has had some sort of equivalent effect, but it's the unintended result of policy rather than a shock to oil prices or restriction in the supply of milk or coal or natural gas or, or whatever. And uh, based on, and I admit this is a limited number of observations, but I've been able to look at data for four businesses, uh, one being a reasonably considerable business in North Island, uh, Marks and Spencer's, and they put figures into their 2021 annual counts. But based on four businesses, I think it's possible to estimate 
that um, in terms of goods, raw materials, components being brought into Northern Ireland from Great Britain, uh, the impact of the protocol in terms of time delays, extra bureaucracy, uh, staff having to you know, book uh, whatever uh, through the telephone and uh, the staff time and so forth, and uh, the businesses paying for vet checks and so on, that, that, that amounts to maybe 6% per annum of, of the total value of the goods uh, being brought in to North Ireland from Great Britain. Now, in 2018, which is still the most recent date that we have, so that's indicative of some of the data issues that we were talking about earlier, um, the flow of goods from Great Britain to Northern Ireland was about £10 billion. So 6% of £10 billion is £600 million. So I'm, I'm posing that as an estimate. And as I say, we would ideally like much more micro or detailed level data about a wide sample of businesses in Northern Ireland, but it's, it's not been possible to collect that at this stage. So that, that I'm suggesting is a £600 million hit to the North Ireland private sector per annum. Now, we don't know how the North Ireland private sector is going to respond to that. It can respond in a number of ways, some of which might mitigate some of the impact. You know, they can shift supply from Great Britain to getting supplies in from the Republic of Ireland or the rest of the European Union. And that would mitigate some of the cost impact, although it might have other impacts which would be less favourable as well. There's also the impact on the Northern public sector, on government and ultimately on all of us, because in terms of um, the protocol, what the UK government has had to do is spend a lot of money every year in 2020 and now in 21, uh, 2021, probably about £250 million pounds per annum or more in terms of trying to mitigate or indeed implement aspects of the protocol. So things like the vet checks at Larne and Belfast ports, uh, the trader support service, uh, digital advice and so on. So this is 250 million plus pounds per annum that no longer can be spent on healthcare or schools or, or other arguably more desirable policy outcomes. So that's how I've come up with a ballpark figure per annum of around about £850 million per annum. Now, it is true, and some commentators have said this is the sort of silver lining that compensates for the protocol, that uh, just as we're seeing a negative impact in terms of Great Britain to Northern Ireland or Northern Ireland to Great Britain trading links, we have seen something of a boom in trade between North Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. But I think there are four grounds for being careful about this. And here are back to the point about be careful how you use the statistics. First of all, some of this growth could be what economists call trade diversion rather than create trade creation. So, uh, businesses and consumers are being forced to move to what may be a higher cost source because they're trying to avoid the frictions created by the protocol. And this isn't necessarily a good outcome. Secondly, uh, you do need to be very careful when you look at trade activity in this year, 2021. Don't compare it to last year because last year was artificially depressed because of the impact of the pandemic and the associated global recession. And so it's better to compare to what the position was in 2018 or 2019. And when you do that, you do still see growth and quite considerable growth, but it's not the sort of uh, fantastic uh, percentage growth rates that, that some have pointed to. Um, a third reason to be careful is that trade data, we're reliant here on the trade data from the Irish Statistics Organisation or body, the CSO, uh, Central Statistics Office in Ireland, is frequently subject to revision and the CSO have already revised down um, in May and June, uh, the, the most recent figures they've published, um, their, 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 their figures for trade growth um, between North Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. And the last point about the data, we do have data because there are um, 15 cross-border 
uh, roads at which the Southern Public Roads Authority Transport Infrastructure Ireland, TII, have uh, counter electronic counter devices or I suppose basically cameras exist just south of the border and they count the number of lorries, vans, trucks moving North Ireland Republic of Ireland and back. And um, when you look at the physical count of the number of freight vehicles, uh, it, it isn't indicative of the very rapid growth that the um, trade data seems to be showing. Now, um, this is a bit puzzling because it's, it's very, very doubtful that there's much trade going on between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland that moves by either ship or aircraft that simply wouldn't be viable. There's some, but I would say it's a negligible proportion of the total. So most of the trade is land-based, goes by lorry, etc. And the number of lorries moving, if you compare the first five months of this year with the first five months of last year, and indeed, as I say, to avoid the effect of the pandemic in 2019, um, the growth is not that pronounced. Now, it may be that the trucks are all being filled to the brim, whereas in 2019 they were half full, but I'm not entirely convinced by that. Or it may be that they're using other roads where the recorder devices are not currently based. But uh, that's why I'd be cautious about saying, well, we have this trade bonanza north-south, which simply compensates for the impact of the protocol. And as I say, in any case, there is the trade diversion problem as well. I suppose, Esmond, that was a question I was going to come on to, is how you would respond to people who might argue that the challenges you've outlined are, are offset, if you like, by the opportunities that the protocol creates uh, in terms of, you know, economic development and potential. Well, I I think there's a limited element of truth in that argument, but it's it's not completely true. So I, I would certainly concede that there are some compensating effects and Northern Ireland in theory still has its access to both the the, the, the Southern Irish market and indeed the wider European single market and customs area, uh, which after all adds up to 450 million or so uh, people. But I'm, I'm not convinced those compensating effects are going to be large enough to, to entirely counterbalance um, the quite considerable upfront costs that we're now facing and Northern Ireland businesses are facing. Um, and in terms of public expenditure that the protocol has imposed. Thanks very much. Esmond, I'm now going to move on to your thoughts on the role of both governments. And very interested in getting your views on the various shared island initiatives that have been launched recently by the Irish government. And also your thoughts on the question of whether the UK government is doing enough to promote the advantages, including the economic advantages of the union. So they're really thinking about the role of both governments, the Irish government's shared island initiative and the work and role of the UK government in terms of promoting the advantages of the union, including economic advantages. Well, uh, thanks. In terms of the shared island, and I think the title is significant um, that the Dublin government decided, uh, and I know they were pushed in various directions, of course, in this front, but they did quite deliberately decide not to badge it as specifically about advocacy uh, for, for unity, but uh, something uh, different from that, which is sharing the island. And that, of course, can be looking at the context of good cooperative, mutually beneficial relationships between North and South, which, of course, is what the, uh, the overall structure, the 1998 Belfast Agreement, the three strands, particularly obviously in this context, strand two north-south, was all ideally envisaging. And I suppose, uh, like a number of people, I do ask myself uh, what what we should be doing uh, in terms of public policy is, is um, you know, the immediate priority should be to try and get all the institutions and all strands of the 1998 agreement working, uh, rather than necessarily thinking about the hypotheticals of, of unity and such you know, major macro level constitutional change. So 
it, it's been pitched in that way, and in, in some ways, my reaction is, uh, if the Irish government wants to spend money like that, in a sense, it's up to them. And you know, I'm grateful for the extra funding which is going to be provided, possibly for the uh, you know, road widening, the dual carriageway in Tyrone, if if uh, the planning system ever gets, you know gets to put that through or the the bridge uh, narrow water and so on and so forth uh, in terms however then of um, the impact of of UK government action and I think there is a uh, there is a problem here that there is this sort of lack of symmetry or lack of balance so yes the sh the shared island uh, initiative as I say, in at least in formal terms, falls short of you know straightforward advocacy of full uh, blown unity. But I suppose it could certainly be interpreted as leading in that way. There isn't any sort of similar level of enthusiastic advocacy on the part of the UK government for the status quo for. Um, uh, North Island's link to Great Britain and so forth. Now, it is true that you might point to things like um, the recent um, Union Connectivity Review. And I think it has potential to do some good and useful work, particularly in areas like um, air transport connectivity and uh, in recent weeks has come to the fore issues around the taxation of air flights, air passenger duty and uh, um, airport policy and air flight connections Northern Ireland to uh, Great Britain and indeed ultimately the rest of the world. Um, it's maybe a bit unfortunate that um, UK government um, approaches on connectivity have become rather uh, wrapped up with or the eyes of many people obscured by um, what appears to be the Prime Minister's, Boris Johnson's, uh, very strong advocacy of the so-called physical link between possibly Northern Ireland and Scotland, the, the bridge tunnel idea, or perhaps other options which may or may not include tunnels around or underneath uh, the Isle of Man and so forth. Um, I, I think that is uh, very prospective and, you know, it's something I've, I've as an economist, I've, I've written about in terms of, you know, we should attempt some sort of cost benefit analysis. Oh, certainly the cost would be astronomic, the, the measurable economic benefits much lower than the cost. Therefore, would it not be better for the Union uh, Connectivity Review to emphasise things like um, the air route situation or indeed the road network in the southwest of Scotland, uh, the roads from Cairn Ryan up to Glasgow, Edinburgh or indeed across to Carlisle because the, those two sets of roads are still, um, there are still issues around them. Moving back a bit to the Brexit debate, um, there's been a lot of reflection on the impact of Brexit on the future of the Union. And, and one of the arguments that has surfaced around that is that the UK is going to be essentially economically worse off in the longer term as a result of Brexit. And it's been interesting to see the return to the EU argument featuring really in the constitutional debate here. And I wonder, again, get your thoughts on that. Has, has Brexit a bit of an own goal for the future of the Union? Well, certainly some commentators have argued that, but then that's been based on the analysis which was very strongly presented at the time of the Brexit vote or immediately prior to it in both 2016 and then a couple of years later, 2018, for example, the Treasury in London produced long and very detailed analysis in which they claimed to project uh, what would happen uh, to the UK economy over the next 15 years um, being out of the EU compared to being in the EU. Of course, that's based on a lot of assumptions about what was going to happen and what, what conditions would be set around such projections. And those projections did claim to show that uh, both the UK economy, but particularly the North Island economy, would take a big hit to its size, uh, so-called GDP or total output might be around about 10% of 
lower uh, by the early 2030s compared to it would to where it would have been. Now, like a number of other economists, uh, I, I've had doubts and still have doubts about um, how valid particularly the Treasury, but they weren't alone in this. There were other commentators produced similar figures. So uh, the, the position I would have is yes, uh, Brexit is disruptive of what were you know, nearly half a century of established trading relationships between the UK and the EU. And such disruption would impose some economic cost, but I think probably much less than the sort of 10% type figure that um, uh, was envisaged in some quarters. Um, so hence, I think um, this argument about the own goal is based on a set of assumptions about what the economics are. Those assumptions are themselves not necessarily valid. Another way to put it would be to say, look, the North Island economy clearly has major struggles, particularly in terms of uh, improving its level of competitiveness compared to the rest of the UK, compared to the rest of the world. That was a major challenge for the economy, arguably the most important challenge facing the economy well before 2016. So uh, I think sometimes Brexit has been used as a sort of exaggerated focus of attention. There were big economic dilemmas and challenges that faced us prior to the Brexit vote. Um, and they will continue to face us uh, in, in, in the years to come. Thank you very much, Esmond. Just you'll be glad to hear a final few questions uh, here. Uh, we've really been focusing in this podcast on the economics around this, but I just wonder how you respond to people who might suggest that this is a debate really about issues of identity, ethno-national identity, and while the economic arguments are significant, they might not have the sort of impact that people imagine. In other words, you know, people will hold to their constitutional preferences very often, regardless of, of the economic consequences of having those preferences. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think that to a degree is a valid point that for many people, uh, whilst they, they will have some interest in questions like, will I have to pay more tax? Will I have to pay when I go to uh, see the doctor or do you go to the emergency department in hospital? Um, that these are important practical so-called bread, bread and butter issues. Uh, they, they have some sway, but I think you're right to say uh, that for many people, um, it'll be more of an identity cultural um, thing. Um, certainly at the time of the Scottish independence referendum in 2014, I, I do remember reading some quite specific, indeed sus suspiciously precise figures which were estimated as to how much money it would take for someone on average in Scotland to switch their sense of identity or their voting from pro-UK to pro-independent Scotland. And I, I, I thought some of the figures did look suspiciously precise and indeed some of them look remarkably low. Uh, but you're back to this point. I think undoubtedly um, identity will be important for some, though not for all. Um, and there are some people for which economic issues will come to the forefront. So it'd be a mixed picture. And then again, we've got had the experience, obviously, of the Brexit referendum in the UK in 2016. And there was a majority uh, voted for leaving the EU, notwithstanding the scale of the economic projections. And we've talked about those coming from the UK Treasury. Uh, coming from independent economists, most of the economic forecasts were quite dire about, about both the immediate impact of Brexit vote, that there would be a recession in 2016, which obviously didn't happen, and also projections that over the longer term, the next 10 to 15 years, we would be worse off out of the EU than in the EU. But most voters, for a variety of reasons, I think, 
uh, some to do with, uh, you know, you can either agree with this agenda or disagree with it, you know, the take back control type mindset or thoughts that people had about the level of migration from EU 27 into the UK. Um, it seemed for many voters, those considerations um, were stronger than the arguments about what's going to happen to GDP or household income or UK trade in the 2020s and into the early 2030s. I think a last precedent and an important significant one to bear in mind is of course from Irish independence uh, because in 1921 undoubtedly a majority of, of people in the southern 26 counties were supportive of, of a degree of independence from uh, the UK and that was notwithstanding that um, the subsequent experience of, of, of a number of decades through to at least 1970 and I would argue possibly even as far as 1990 was that that independence came at an economic price probably levels of living standards particularly in terms of government spending taxation and so forth were adverse compared to what they would have been uh, if um, the, the Irish Free State or the Irish Republic had remained within the the UK but you know people can make these choices they can trade off as economists would talk about um, lower living standards for national independence so I suppose sometimes I'm, I'm tempted to think and say well maybe um, some Irish nationalists and Irish Republicans should be a little bit more sympathetic for pro-Brexit voting people in the UK because after all the sense if the UK does take an economic hit from Brexit there's the precedent there that uh, the Irish in, in Ireland independence was also similarly uh, as it were Verticom was bought at the price of some reduction over a period of time in, in living standards. You, you'll be delighted to know, Esmond, this is the, the last question and just to get your, your final thoughts. Uh, there's a lot of discussion at the moment about planning and preparing for the potential for a referendum here, if you like, in the future. And there's been a lot of emphasis in that work on the need for a well-informed, you know, evidence-based conversation, whatever view people have about the future. I just wanted to, to finish and, and to get your final thoughts, including on this and any additional thoughts. What more needs to be done to ensure that any debate that happens here from an economic perspective is a well-informed and evidence-based conversation? So in a sense, when people go to vote either way, they're as clear as they possibly can about what they're voting for or against. Yes, I think that, Colin, thanks, that's a very important point. And uh, earlier this year, there, there was the study uh, report produced by a number of academics, both here in Northern Ireland and indeed uh, in, in London and elsewhere around the world about, you know, how a, a so-called border poll might be framed. And one of the points they made is that uh, you could have a vote in principle and then work out the details subsequently, or a lot of the detail is established in advance of the vote. And that, so then people vote, as it were, with their eyes open, knowing what's going to happen to, for example, income tax or business tax, or notably the um, the health service. And uh, certainly my personal view uh, would be that the latter option would be superior, because if we don't do that, then um, to use that colloquialism, there's a very great danger of a multi-billion pound buying of a pig in the poke, particularly with respect to healthcare, because I think there is a, there's a growing uh, case being made to say, being said that, well, look, there are problems in the Northern healthcare system, waiting lists notably, as we cannot avoid seeing on a day-to-day -day basis, and it's very distressing. Um, but there's also an issue about the Southern system, which is a mixed system of funding and finance and access and doesn't give free a point of use care for most of the population. So, so some people have said, well, in the context of union, 
of, of Irish uh, unity, we will have a new system, a new better comprehensive healthcare system that solves all the problems. Now, it is, my reaction to that is, well, that would be nice if you could do it, but there's no detail there. Uh, there's no assurance or certainty that we get from where we are now to where those people want to go to. So, uh, you know, it's a question of tens of billions of pounds worth or tens of billions of euros worth of, of reform and restructuring and what would the new system look like? So as a, as a general point, I think it would be better and uh, you talked about evidence-based debate and informed public and indeed electorate that people knew what the terms of unity actually involved in detail. I think another a few other considerations that, that should be developed in the short to medium run to, to make this debate better and better informed is that um, I think we need a much wider recognition um, that the North Island economy, whilst, yes, back to the glass is half full and half empty, whilst there's some aspects of the economy have performed reasonably well, uh, our growth of employment has been reasonably good, levels of unemployment reasonably low, and indeed in terms of unemployment in some respects, North Island has been outperforming the, the Southern Irish economy. But that there are major underlying structural difficulties with the Northern economy. There's this challenge of a lack of competitiveness of low levels of productivity. This was true for decades before the Brexit vote, so it can't be blamed on Brexit. It can't even be blamed on the Troubles because it predates the 1970s to some extent. So we've got an economy which I think needs reform, needs recuperation. And hence, I think we need to avoid major shocks to the system. Now, to some degree, Brexit was a shock. We can dispute how big the shock was. And certainly I'm one of the more optimistic commentators who think that um, it's not as, as dire as the Treasury and other forecasters thought it would be. But it's been a shock to the system. Obviously, COVID uh last year and still to a degree this year is a shock to the economic system quite apart from obviously a public health um, and in many ways a human tragedy as well um so we don't need more major shocks uh, and major constitutional change would be a shock to the economy um and lastly, I think there's been an underappreciation of the benefits that North Island derives from being part of a larger unit, or indeed the UK in this context, in terms of things like pooling risk. So I think North Island was better provided for in the context of the banking crisis back 12 years ago, or indeed currently in the context of COVID. Um, than it would have been in an all-Ireland uh, all um, constitutional arrangement. Okay, well, th thank you so much, Esmond, for sharing your insights and thank you for your contribution to, to this debate. I've no doubt at all that uh, this conversation is going to continue. And just like to end by, by thanking you again, Esmond. Thank you.